Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today. David Sedaris's writing as we get into hold on, hold on, hold on. The youth in Asia I had to open the book and see what I dog-eared last week. Yes, I am Patrick Attaway. If you've never listened to this podcast before, this is not the best episode to start on. So maybe go back to the last one or maybe the first one. Listen to the whole goddamn podcast and then get back to me, okay? Okay, love you, bye. So anyway, those of you who are regular listeners are just stubborn. I released a new album this week. Yay. Remember last week when I said, maybe I should do an album. Well, I did the album and then I put it out on Spotify and wherever you stream music. It is entitled 2023 or uh, 2023, however you want to say it or pronounce it in my case. But yes, I released a new album of ambient instrumentals, although a couple of them are a little bit rockier. I purposely strayed away from a couple of things. Number one, I don't have a lot of distortion on the album. Number two, I don't have a lot of acoustic guitar on the album. And I guess number three, that's more than a couple, I don't have a lot of bass on the album. It's very much a straightforward ambient guitar album with some, you know, solo melodies on top of very dense sounding rhythm tracks. As I said last week, I'm on TikTok now as Lurking Val, which is also my music moniker. And what the kids respond to is the clean chorus guitar. So that's what I put out because I'm making videos now. Not me on camera videos, but just videos to help promote my music and kind of to promote my books too. Which, by the way, as of 218, 2023... My book, Iconic Misery, is going to be free on Amazon until Wednesday. So if you're listening to this on Thursday, or in March, or in any future date that isn't this this present time, within this this five-day time frame, uh, you're going to have to wait to download it for free again. I'm sorry. I know that... You know, if I if I could, I'd make all my books free all the time. Really, I would. If Amazon would allow it, I would make them free all the time. Why? Because I would rather people just read them. I don't care about profit. I only make, you know, on a 99-cent book, I only make 35 cents of profit anyway. And on paperbacks, I don't make very much money. So, who cares? Fucking party. The last time I did a free book giveaway and promoted it on Reddit and Twitter, I... I got like hundreds of downloads and I checked it just now after only the first day and I've only gotten four downloads. I love this so much. Oh my God. Being an author is amazing. I did something absolutely reckless last night and my wife told me that, you know, I should do it. I'm not going to tell you what I bought or how I'm buying it or anything like that, but I ordered a new guitar. Now, I... On, on average, I get about a new guitar each year, which is no big deal. You know, I'm an adult. I'm in my 30s. If I want to buy a new guitar, I'll buy a new guitar. But this one, boy, this was this is the most expensive guitar I've bought since I bought my Rickenbacker in 2011. And I didn't actually buy my Rickenbacker. My mom helped me buy it, and I paid her back for half of it, so... You know, and that was a whole, that's a whole other story. 2011, I did, I had nothing. So that investment has well paid itself off considering all the music I've made with that guitar. But this, this, I've got big boy money now. I've got a full-time job. I've got a second job as a teacher. I am in my 30s. So who the fuck cares if I buy a new guitar now? But this, Jesus, I'm not going to tell you what it is. If you know me. I'm probably going to tell you anyway, (laughs) but I'm not going to tell you on the podcast what it is. Just know that if I end up falling in love with this guitar, my next album or next song or whatever comes out first, it'll have this guitar on it for sure. I have way too many guitars 
And what's funny is that I've given some to friends because of how much I hate trying to sell or trade them. I've already gone over the horror story that happened to me in 2021. It was that long ago. The last time I tried trading at a store. Oh boy. But I gave my friend who may be listening to this, I gave him two guitars. Um, I actually gave it to his wife because he was in prison at the time. And he's been enjoying it as a free man, being all hot and sexy in the free world. I gave another friend my old Les Paul. I have a couple more guitars, actually about three or four more guitars I could easily just give to people. I would not miss them because I go through phases with my instruments and now I have gear that I'll keep forever like my Strat. I bought my Strat in 2019 it was with the intent of buying the last Strat I'll ever need and that's how it worked out. I have a Fender Mustang that you know it's sentimental to me because my mom bought it for me as my college graduation gift. I have a Taylor acoustic guitar that is a bitch to play a lot of the time. It depends on how you know, nimble my, my fingers are feeling that day. But there is one piece of gear in my collection in terms of guitars that I will never part with that seems like something that wouldn't last forever, but it's actually one of the best items I've ever owned, and it's a Squire Jazz Bass. Now, I bought this before I started boycotting Fender, so it's okay. I, I will never buy another Fender product as long as a certain someone works for their company and as long as they're still doing butt shit asshole things like laying off entire shifts of people and then giving their CEOs big bonuses. But this, the jazz bass that I have, not only does it sound amazing, it's no longer in production. Now people are selling that same bass for $200 more than it originally sold for. I mean, it's a sought-after model. And what I can't figure is why it's made so well, but I've never owned another Squire or even a budget-lined Fender that was made as well as this bass. It still has the original strings on it because I don't play it every day. I'm not a bass player. I play it on my albums, and that's about it. Meanwhile, I have to spray... I love my Paul Reed Smith... It's a dynamite guitar, but every now and then I have to spray the pickup selector with electronic duster because it gets grimy and it won't fucking work on the bridge pickup anymore. So I have to flick it a million times and then spray it down and then it works again. It's annoying. My Squire Telecaster, I have two Squire Telecasters, but the more expensive one, the $500 one. That's the one that has the pickup selector issue. Not the $200 one that's built like a brick shit house. No, not that one. The electronics in that are great too. I can't figure out why... I don't understand why a $500 guitar by the same company has more issues than their $200 guitar model. I've talked enough about gear. I've been thinking about maybe just doing an entire episode about gear. Maybe starting a whole new podcast, but I don't have time for that. So today we're reading The Youth in Asia. And if you're wondering how I'm picking these essays from Me Talk Pretty one day as I'm going through this book for the sake of the podcast, I'm just picking the ones that look like they're a, a reasonable length and then reading them. That's the whole science to it. I don't remember reading this when I originally read it back in... 2019 when I bought this book actually I bought it in 2018 but that's beside the point you don't care fuck you in the early 1960s during what my mother referred to as the tail end of the Lassie years my parents were given two collies which they named Rastus and Duchess we were living in New York State out in the country and the dogs were free to race around the forest they napped in meadows and stood knee-deep in frigid streams, co-stars, and their own private dog food commercial. According to our father, anyone could tell the two of them were in love. Late one evening, while lying on a blanket in the garage, Duchess gave birth to a litter of slick, potato-sized puppies. When it looked as though one of them had died, our mother arranged the puppy in a casserole dish and popped it in the oven, like the witch in Hansel and Gretel. 
Oh, keep your shirts on, she said. It's only set on two. I'm not baking anyone. This is just to keep him warm. The heat revived the sick puppy and left us believing that our mother was capable of resurrecting the dead. Faced with the responsibilities of fatherhood, Rastus took off. The puppies were given away and we moved south, where the heat and humidity worked against a collie's best interests. Duchess's once beautiful coat now hung in ragged patches. Age set in and she limped about our house, clearing rooms with her suffocating farts. When finally full of worms, she collapsed in the ravine beside our house. We re-evaluated our mother's healing powers. The entire animal kingdom was beyond her scope. Apparently, she could only resurrect the cute dead. I like that, the cute dead. It's kind of like, there's this old Dennis Leary joke about not wanting to eat cute animals like dolphins or whales, but wanted to eat cows because they're ugly, but I've seen many a cute cow. The oven trick was performed on half a dozen peckish hamsters, but failed to work on my first guinea pig who died after eating a couple of cigarettes and an entire pack of matches. Don't take it too hard, my mother said, removing her oven mitts. The world is full of guinea pigs. You can just go get another one tomorrow. My wife is watching Sons of Anarchy in the other room. So if you hear motorcycles or really gruff speaking, it's from the TV. And you know what? This is not a professional. Give me your, show me your receipt if you're, if you have complaints, you bastard. Eulogies tended to be brief. Our motto being another day, another collar. Short time after Duchess died, our father came home with a German Shepherd puppy. For reasons that were never fully explained, the privilege of naming the dog went to a friend of my older sister's, a 14-year-old girl named Cindy. She was studying German at the time, and after carefully examining the puppy and weighing it in her hand, she announced that it would be called Matchkin, which apparently meant girl to the Volks back in the Vaterland. I believe it's it's Machen, but I'm going to say Matchkin because of Machen Amik and her relationship to David Lynch, so get over yourselves. We weren't wild about the name, but considered ourselves lucky that Cindy wasn't studying one of the hard-to-renounce Asian languages. When she was six months old, Matchkin was hit by a car and killed. Her food was still in the bowl when our father brought home an identical German shepherd, which the same Cindy thoughtfully christened. Matchkin too. This tag team progression was disconcerting, especially to the new dog, which was expected to possess both the knowledge and the personality of her predecessor. Matchkin one would have never wet the floor like that, my father would scold, and the dog would sigh, knowing she was the canine equivalent of rebound. Matchkin two never accompanied us to the beach and rarely posed in any of the family photographs. Once her puppyhood was spent, we lost all interest. We ought to get a dog, we'd sometimes say, completely forgotten that we'd already had one. She came inside to eat, but most of her time was spent outside in the pen, slumping in the A-frame doghouse our father had designed and crafted from scrap pieces of redwood. Hey, he'd ask, how many dogs can they say live in a redwood house? Who is they and why are they talking about dogs living in houses? This always led to my mother's exhausted, Oh, Lou, how many dogs can say that they don't live in a goddamn redwood house? Throughout the Collie and Shepherd years, we kept a succession of drowsy, secretive cats that seemed to enjoy a unique bond with our mother. It's because I opened their cans, she'd say, though we all knew it ran deeper than that. What they really had in common were their claws. That and a primal urge to destroy my father's golf bags. The first cat ran away and the second one was hit by a car. The third passed into a disagreeable old age and died hissing at the kitten that had prematurely arrived to replace her. When at the age of seven, the fourth cat was diagnosed with feline leukemia, my mother was devastated. I'm going to have to put Sadie to sleep, she said. It's for her own good, and I don't want to hear a word about it from any of you. This is hard enough as it is. The cat was put down, and then came a series of crank phone calls and anonymous postcards orchestrated by my sisters and me. The cards announced a miraculous new cure for feline leukemia, 
and the callers identified themselves as representatives from Cat Fancy Magazine. We'd like to use Sadie as our September cover store, and we're hoping to schedule a photo shoot as soon as possible. Do you think you could have her ready by tomorrow? (laughs) Oh my god, this is the first time I've fucking cracked up like that on this podcast. My god, I need a sip of ginger ale. My wife and I purposefully mispronounce certain words. Ginger ale is, is one of them. We called... Wendy's with nasties. It started out as calling it Wednesdays, uh, days, but now we call it wet nasties. You know, the whole business of owning an animal, having a pet, is kind of sad. I mean, you're happy for a while, but you're just kind of ramping up to sadness. And I'm not stealing a Louis C.K. joke, but the first dog that I remember having, besides Bo, Bo doesn't count because what happened with Bo, and I never got over it. I did, but let's just say I didn't. When I was a kid and my parents were still married, we had a dog, Bo. He was a Boston Terrier. And after they divorced, my mother gave the dog to my great uncle, who's a dog breeder. And I had to constantly see my cousin's dog buddy who was Bo's brother so I would see this reminder of my dog at Christmas and other holidays and it was just sad for me the next dog that I had was what are what are they called a fucking a beagle I had a beagle named Hector allegedly my uncle suggested the name Hector this was at my birthday. And I say allegedly like I wasn't fucking there. I was there and I remember he suggested Hector. And it wasn't Hector Elizondo. It was Hector from the Iliad. Not to be confused with Homer, the author, the alleged author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And probably other things that I was never forced to read in high school and college and grad school. Anyway, Hector died, obviously. I mean, that's where the story's going. He died of heartworms. And I I don't know why, other than the fact that I guess my mother never thought to give him medication that you're supposed to give your dogs what, every month or so. Just give him a heart guard pill. Yeah, I don't know why that didn't happen. But he died, and that was sad. I only had him for a couple of years. So I have a history of just dogs dying, and so I don't want a dog. It makes me sad. Like they could, you could have them for two years. You could have them for twelve years. They just die. That's what they do. Come to think of it, I've never written a story, or at least one that saw the light of day, where someone had a dog or a cat. I I think I need to branch out a bit more. I think I need to have a character that has a dog, at, at the very least. But. You know, so many of my characters are only children. They don't have siblings. And it, this this new novel I just finished, it's about a guy who's an only child. His parents stayed together, but that's about the biggest difference between me and him. Can I take you on a brief diversion here for a second? While I was waiting for the first part of this podcast to export, I opened TikTok because, you know, I'm brain dead. And I saw Mark Mirren talking about how He has all these comedian friends or people who he knows who are comedians saying that they're now anti-woke comedians because they feel like they're being persecuted by the woke. And you know what's funny is that the only people I ever hear using the term woke are people who are using it against those who are allegedly woke. But beyond that, I seem to only hear either people who are either making fun of or feeling persecuted because of the woke are people who are allegedly woke, who don't self-identify as woke, who are making fun of those people who are complaining about being persecuted for being anti-woke. And such that it is, uh, on a related note, but also not related at all, I'm really tired of seeing memes and commentary about Leonardo DiCaprio dating people who are young. I don't give a fuck. I don't know Leonardo DiCaprio. He doesn't come to my house. I've never met him. I don't care if he's dating a 19-year-old. I've probably gone on this rant before, but 
that person is 19 years old. They're a legal adult. Let them make the mis- their mistakes. And, you know, yeah, you can have your opinion about Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't give a shit. I don't want to hear it. I don't care. He's not hurting me. And if you want to know my opinion about all that shit, I've already said my personal uh, measurement of age difference and being appropriate. Now, you know, at a certain point, this is kind of thrown out the window because, you know, both parties become old enough that nobody gives a shit anymore. Like, I don't really know that anyone would care if a 40-year-old dated a 55-year-old. I just don't think anyone would give a shit. But since we're living in this bizarre world where everyone's in everyone else's business and what they do in the bedroom, and they don't see the irony in that, I say seven years difference. This is just for me. Because I feel that if I were seven years old, I could have gone to the hospital when that person was born, and I could have stood on my own two feet and held them. And I find something a little weird about having sex with someone that I could have held when they were a baby and remembered doing so. Now, that's an interesting thing to say, especially considering I just spent the day with my seven-year-old niece and... I am trying to remember what I was like at seven. And of course I have always thought that I've always been the same, but you know, there are times when she's kind of a little dumbass because she's a child and she doesn't know everything. So occasionally she'll say or do something that I'm like, wow, that was really stupid. So maybe seven years isn't the best measurement because she's pretty much still a baby to me, you know, but I'm married. So I have no intention of ever dating again. And if I ever have to date again, I'm going to date older. And I don't have an age limit for older. I fucking date you if you're 80. I don't give a goddamn. Give me that old coochie. When Manchkin 2 developed sp- splintic tumors, th- this is the first time I'm saying that out loud, my father dropped everything and ran to her side. Evenings were spent at the animal hospital, lying on a mat outside her cage and adjusting her IV. He'd never afforded her much attention when she was healthy, but her impending death awoke him in a great sense of duty. He was holding her paw when she died, and he spent the next several weeks asking us how many dogs could say they'd lived in a redwood house. Our mother, in turn, frequently paused beside my father's tattered, urine-stained golf bag and relieved and relived memories of her own. Listen. I've got adequate lighting in this room, but if I had just a little bit more, I'd probably make less mistakes while I was reading. And there's Sons of Anarchy in the background. After spending a petless year with only one child still living at home, my parents visited a breeder and returned with a Great Dane they named Melina. They loved this dog in proportion to its size, and soon their hearts had no room for anyone else. In terms of mutual respect and admiration, Their six children had been nothing more than a failed experiment. Melina was the real thing. The house was given over to the dog, rooms decorated to suit her fancy. Enter your former bedroom and you'd be told, you better not let Melina catch you in here, or this is where we come to pee-pee when there's nobody home to let us outside, right girl? The knobs on our dressers were whittled down to damp stubs, and our beds were matted with fine, short hairs. Scream at the mangled leather carcass lying on the foot of the stairs. And my parents would roar with laughter. That's what you get for leaving your wallet on the kitchen table. The dog was their first genuine common interest. And they loved it equally, each in his or her own way. Our mother's love tended toward the horizontal, a pet being little more than a napping companion. Something she could look at and say, That seems like a good idea. Scoot over, why don't you? A strange peeking through the window. A stranger. Not talking about some strange showing up at your doorstep here. Although that would be a different story. And one that I would totally read on the podcast. A stranger peeking through the window might think that the two of them had entered a suicide pact. She and the dog sprawled like... (laughs) She and the dog sprawled like corpses. Their limbs... Arranged in an eternal embrace. God, that felt good, my mom would say. The two of them waking for a brief scratch. Now, let's go try it on the living room floor. My father loved the Great Dane for its size and 
frequently took her on long, aimless drives during which she'd stick her heavy anvil-sized head out the window and leak great quantities of foamy saliva. Other drivers pointed and stared, rolling down their windows to shout, Hey, you got a saddle for that thing? When out for a walk, there was the inevitable, Are you walking her or is it the other way around? Ha ha, our father always laughed as if it were the first time he'd heard it. The attention was addictive, and he enjoyed a pride of accomplishment he never felt with any of us. It was as if he were somehow responsible for her beauty and stature, as if he'd personally designed her spots and trained her to grow to the size of a pony. When out with the dog, he carried a leash in one hand and a shovel in the other. Just in case, he said. Just in case what, she dies of a heart attack and you need to bury her? I didn't get it. No, he said. The shovel is for, you know, her business. My father was retired, but the dog had business. I was living in Chicago when I first got Melina, and every time I came home, the animal was bigger. Every time, there was more Marmaduke cartoons displayed on the refrigerator, and every time, my voice grew louder as I asked, Who are you people? Down, girl, my father's would chuckle as the dog jumped up, panting for my attention. Her great padded paws reached my waist, then my chest and shoulders, until eventually her arms wrapped around my neck and her power, her head towering above my own. She came to resemble a dance partner scouting the room for a better offer. So, uh, my wife had a friend. I'm not going to say her name because they're no longer friends and I'm glad for it. But she had a really nice dog. I liked that dog and he was huge. But he had the impression that he was still a puppy so he could get away with just jumping on people. And he would knock them over. And so, I would play with him and that was one of the 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 things that made me a little bit more endearing to my wife's friend because she said that typically he didn't like other men. So I would play with this dog and uh, he would just go crazy around me. I, I loved that dog. I love playing with dogs. I love loving on dogs. But unfortunately, I don't feel that I'm an adequate pet owner. I think that I'm a great pet visitor, though. Hit me, my mother said on one of my return visits home from Chicago. No, wait, let me get my camera. She left the room and returned only a few moments later. Okay, now you can hit me. Better yet, why don't you just pretend to hit me? I raised my hand and my mother cried out in pain. Ow! She yelled. Somebody help me. This stranger is trying to hurt me and I don't know why. I caught an advancing blur moving in from the left. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I was down on the ground. The dog ripping significant holes in my neck. I think that's a better sentence than what he actually wrote on the page, so I'll stick with it. The camera flashed, and my mother screamed with delight. God, I love that trick. I rolled over to protect my face. It's not a trick. My mother snapped another picture. Oh, don't be so critical. It's close enough. With us grown and out of the house, my sisters and I reasonably expected our parents' lives to stand still. Their assignment was to stagnate and live in the past. We were supposed to be the center of their lives, but instead they had constructed a new family consisted of Melina and the founding members of her fan club. Someone who obviously didn't know her too well had given my mother a cheerful stuffed bear with a calico heart stitched to his chest. According to the manufacturer, the bear's name was Mumbles, and all it needed in order to thrive was were two AA batteries and a regular diet of hugs. Where's Mumbles? My mother would ask, and the dog would jump up and snatch the bear from its hiding place on the top of the refrigerator, yanking its body this way and that in hopes of breaking its neck. Occasionally her teeth would press against the on switch, and the doomed thing would flail its arms, whispering one of its five recorded messages of goodwill. That's my girl, my mother would say. We don't like Mumbles, do we? When I was... Uh probably four or five, and my mother and I lived in an apartment. Um, she gave me a singing bear for Christmas, and it had overalls. I think I still have it somewhere, but I don't have the voice box. 
but it sang a little banjo tune. And it was about, as I recall, it would sing about forcing some girl off onto the dance floor and dosy doing and grabbing her and whatnot. And my mother would cackle every single time. It was a memory that I wish I had on film like so many others from my childhood where my mother just lost it over nothing during the final years of, I don't care if you don't like that story. If you think it was pointless, fuck you during the final years of magic and two in the first half of the Molina administration, I lived with a female cat named Neil dull gray in color. She'd been abandoned by a spooky alcoholic with long fingernails and a large collection of kimonos. He was a hateful man, and after he moved, the cat was taken in and renamed by my sister Gretchen, who later passed the animal on to me. My mother looked after Neil when I left from when I moved from Raleigh, Jesus, and flew her to Chicago once I'd found a place and settled in. I'd taken the cheapest apartment I could find, and it showed. Though they were nice, my immigrant neighbors could see no connection between their personal habits and the armies of mice and roaches aggressively occupying the building. Welcoming the little change of scenery, entire families would regularly snack and picnic in the hallways, leaving behind candy fruits and half-eaten tacos. Neil caught 14 mice and scores of other escaped with missing limbs and tails. In Raleigh, she'd just lain around the house doing nothing, but now she had a real job. Her interests broadened, and she listened intently to the radio, captivated by the political and financial stories, which failed to engage me. One more word about the Iran-Contra hearings, and you'll be sleeping next door with the aliens, I'd say, though we both knew that I didn't really mean it. That's a very politically incorrect sentence there, Mr. Sedaris, and I'm not offended by it. Neil was old when she moved to... Is it... Wait a minute, this is a girl cat named Neil? Jesus Christ, gender norms. Neil was old when she moved to Chicago, and then she got older. It's a great story. The Oliver North testimony, now behind her, she started leaving teeth in her bowl and developed the sort of breath that could remove paint. She stopped cleaning herself, and I took to bathing her in the sink. When she was soaking wet, I could see just how thin and brittle she really was. Her kidneys shrank to the size of raisins, and although I wanted what was best for her, I naturally assumed the vet was joking when he suggested dialysis. In addition to being elderly, toothless, and incontinent, it seemed that for the cost of a few thousand dollars, she could also spend three days a week hooked up to a machine. Sounds awfully tempting, I said. Just give us a few days to think it over. I took her for a second opinion. Vet number two tested her blood and phoned me a few days, suggesting I considered euthanasia. Did I pronounce that correctly? Who cares? I hadn't heard that word since childhood and immediately recalled a mismatch of uh, Japanese schoolboys standing alone in the deserted schoolyard. One of the boys, grossly obese, was attempting to climb a flagpole that towered high above him. Silhouetted against the darkening sky, he hoisted himself a few feet off the ground and clung there, trembling and out of breath. I can't do it, he said. This is too hard for me. His friend, a gaunt and serious boy named Kamatsu, stood behind him, offering encouragement. Oh, but you can do it. You must, he said. It is required. This was a scene I had long forgotten, and thinking of it made me unbearably sad. The boys were characters from Fatty and Skinny, a Japanese movie regularly presented on the CBS Children's Film Festival, a weekly TV series hosted by two puppets, and a very patient woman who pretended to laugh at their jokes. Having shimmied a few more inches of the flagpole, Fatty lost his grip and fell down into the sand. As he brushed himself off, Skinny ran down the mountain toward the fragile, papery house he shared with his family. This had been Fatty's last chance to prove himself. He thought his friend's patience was unlimited, but now he knew he was wrong. Komatsu, he yelled. Komatsu, please give me one more chance. The doctor's voice called me back from the Japanese playground. So the euthanasia, he said. Are you giving it some thought? Wait a minute. Wait a goddamn minute. How did euthanasia... And am I pronouncing that right? I don't care. I've said that before. 
How did this remind him of these two Japanese boys? What? This is... Was one of them named Euthanasia or something? Is this some sort of racist joke? Oh, the Euthanasia. Oh my God, Patrick. It's the title of the story. Jesus Christ, Patrick. Get it together. So the reason why it it reminded him of these two Japanese boys is because it sounds... Like the youth in Asia. Okay. In the end, I returned to the animal hospital and had her put to sleep. When the vet injected the sodium uh, barbitual, Neil fluttered her eyes. You know, it could be pronounced Nell, but I'm going to keep saying Neil. Assumed a nap position and died. My boyfriend stayed to make arrangements, and I ran outside to blubber beside the parked an unfortunately locked car. Neil had gotten into her cat carrier, believing that eventually she would return to her apartment, and that tore me up. Someone had finally been naive enough to trust me and had rewarded her with death. Wracked by guilt, the youth in Asia sat at their desk and wept bitter tears. A week after putting her to sleep, I received Neil's ashes in a forest green can. She'd never expressed any great interest in the outdoors, so I scattered her remains on the carpet and then vacuumed her back up. What the fuck? (laughs) That reminds me of the two and a half minute episode after Charlie Sheen is killed off and Alan dumps his ashes all over the house by accident and then he has to clean him up with a dust buster. This happened several times over the course of the following four seasons, of course. When my mother died and was cremated herself, we worried that, acting on instinct, our father might run out and immediately replace her. There's a Ron White joke about this, by the way, and I'm not going to tell it. Returning from the funeral, my brother, sisters, and I half expected to find some vaguely familiar Sharon 2 standing in the kitchen counter and working the puzzle and TV guide. Sharon 1 would have gotten five across, our father would have scolded. Come on, baby, get with it. With my mother gone, my father and Melina had each other all to themselves. Though she now occupied the side of the bed left vacant by her former mistress, the dog knew she could never pass as a viable replacement. Her love was too fierce and simple, and she had no talent for argument. Yet she and my father honored their pledge to adore and protect each other. They celebrated anniversaries, regularly renewed their vows and growled when challenged by outside forces. You want me to go where? When invited to one of those things that his children did, my father would beg off saying, But I can't leave town. Who'd take care of Melina? Mention a kennel and he'd laugh. You've got to be out of your mind, a kennel. Hey, did you hear that, Melina? They want me to put you in a prison. Due to their size, Great Danes generally don't live very long, generally about six or seven years. There are cheeses with a longer shelf life. At the end of at the age of twelve, good God, gray bearded and teetering, Melina was a wonder of science. My father massaged her arthritic legs, carried her up the stairs, and lifted her in and out of bed. He treated her the way that men in movies treat their ailing wives, the way he might have treated my mother had she allowed such naked displays of helplessness and affection. Melina's era spanned the final dozen years of his married life. The dog had ridden in the family's last station wagon and attended my father's retirement party and celebrated the elections of two Republican presidents. She grew weaker and lost her appetite, But against all advice, my father simply could not bear to let her go. The youth in Asia begged him to end her life. I can't, he said. This this is too hard for me. Oh, but you must do it, said Kamatsu. It is required. I'm not reading the rest of this. This is fucking sad as hell. I think after doing four weeks of David Sedaris, it's time for us to move on, don't you? We have started out 2023 so, so well. You know, I'm sure that everyone is just so excited. They're masturbating in their seats. They are tickling their assholes. They are calling their moms while they do it. When they climax, their mother asks, what was that? What are you doing? 
I am tired. Yesterday, when we picked my niece up, we decided that I was going to have to cook because my niece wanted spaghetti and Olive Garden's app was down. And my spaghetti is better than Olive Garden's anyway. So we had to go to the store. Had to get the shit. It was cold as hell outside. And then we came home. It was already after 7 o'clock. And I like to eat at 5.30. And it took me, you know, 30 minutes or so to make the spaghetti and the garlic bread. And by the time I sat down on the couch to eat, I was fucking over it. I was already tired well before then. I've been having a really hard time waking up lately. It might be because of the colder weather. It might be because I'm getting older and fatter. I don't know. But I had to make breakfast this morning, which also made me feel tired as shit after I ate biscuits and gravy. My God, it was just too much. And then we had to go out of town because we were going to trick my niece into taking her home. So we went to a town between our town and her town and we did, we just, all we did there was go to Barnes and Noble and my wife didn't get the, uh, the issue of Vanity Fair that she wanted. That was the only thing that happened. It was very anticlimactic. And I went to the bathroom in that Barnes and Noble after standing around well too long in the company of books. And let me tell you, I, I don't know what it is. Being around books, it's like a laxative. And it's always chaotic. It's never a gentle, in the night sort of poop. It is a apocalypse now shit that comes rummaging out of me. And it just it does not go down in one flush. Let me tell you. And if you think that's crass, let me tell you something. Everybody poops. You need to stop acting like you don't poop too. My farts before this moment were ravenous to the point where my wife was plotting my demise. And that brings us back to demise of the podcast where I'm sitting right now talking to you about my bowel movements. There are people who have gotten over the fact that I'm not tweeting as much anymore. All I'm doing is posting links to my stuff The other day, I announced the title and potential book cover for my new novel. It's called Green Skin. It's about a guy whose skin turns green. Someone asked me what the book was about after seeing the cover. And, you know, my only response was, it's about a dude whose skin turns green. It's a literary novel. That may not sound like a literary novel to you. It may sound like science fiction or fantasy. But it's in the real world, and that's his malady. It's an illness, only he's not ill. Anyway, I know you're just going to love that when it comes out. Actually, if you enjoyed the short stories that I published last year and I read on the podcast, you would probably really like Green Skin. It's basically like one of my short stories in the form of a novel. Before I sign off, I want to complain about something right now. I might do an episode on the band Ween, because I listened to this podcast called Bandsplain. And neither of these people on this podcast seemed to really like Ween, despite the fact that they were talking about Ween. And the guy who was allegedly a fan of Ween complained that this band would get canceled if they released the album 12 Golden Country Greats. That album is amazing, and I don't care if they have a song called Mr. Richard Smoker, You're a Poopy Poker, okay? It's all done in jest, it's all tongue-in-cheek, and if you find it offensive, I don't want to be friends with you anyway. Did you know that recently, all of, uh, okay, there's a Patti Smith song, and it's called Rock and Roll Inward, and she played it at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when she was inducted. This is like 10 years ago, actually it was more than 10 years ago, because I was still in high school, but... Everything 10 years ago was when I was in high school, okay? I don't care that it was 2013, 10 years ago. I will tell you that I was in high school even though I graduated in 2010. But Patti Smith had a song called Rock and Roll Inward. And it wasn't a racist song about people that she hated. It was a a song where she naively thought that she could reclaim the meaning of that word. And yes... I said that she's naive to to think that. It was a very stupid thing to think. 
The song's not bad, but the issue is that she did it within a certain context and a certain time period. It's not a hateful song. And she played it at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Marilyn Manson covered it. I don't like Marilyn Manson, but he covered it, and people seem to think it's one of his songs. It is her song, and guess what? It was produced by Jimmy Iovine, who collaborated with Dr. Dre to make Beats by Dre. So this is a song that is rooted in a legitimacy that is not based on hatred, but because of the way that people are today, and I'm not going to go on a rant about people being woke. People are just fucking stupid, okay? And I'm not defending the use of the N-word at all. I'm saying that this song was made with a certain context, and you don't have to fucking listen to it. And yet, it was pulled off every streaming service, which, you know what, fine. But I just know that despite the fact that years of defending that song, and nobody asking to cancel Patti Smith over the song, because not many people knew about it, despite the fact that it was played at her Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in front of everybody and God, it's not even on par with the David Allen Coe stuff. I think a lot of the David Allen Coe X-rated stuff is fucking hilarious because I've got a sick sense of humor. That's who it's for. It's not meant to spread hatred. It's there for a fucking laugh. I was in a really dark place when I first heard that album, and I fucking laughed my ass off. There's a middle ground here. And I'm not talking about being a centrist. I'm talking about a middle ground between two extremes here. Because most people are not... Most people don't give a shit. Most people are in the middle. They are not crazy right wing. They're not crazy left wing. They're in the middle. They're not centrist. They're just part of the real world. You start talking about political correctness to them like you're in a college classroom. They're going to be like, who gives the fuck about that? And they're going to go on about their day because they've got to go make eight bucks an hour washing shit while you're sitting there worried about what offends people and being offended on people's behalf. So to bring it back to Ween, because that's where I started this little rant... People who get offended by something like Ween to very well-intentioned men. It's like there's this old radio interview with Dean Ween where he says, are, are you guys anti-Semitic? You've got this song that says this. And he says, we're both Jews, man. Both Dean and Gene Ween are Jewish. Yes. And they also happen to live in a town that has, uh, I think, allegedly the highest population of gay men in their region like something about I don't know what the statistic is but they're surrounded by a lot of different kinds of people and I don't think that these two gentlemen have any intention of offending or hate or causing the spread of hatred for anyone it's all about intent people so you know, what's interesting is that I've seen The Birth of a Nation mentioned unironically as a great movie by legitimate by legitimate uh, publications. And it's a fucking racist film. It's like in high school when they try and teach you that the KKK was started with good intentions. Who the fuck cares? It's like trying to say that the Civil War wasn't started over slavery. Yes, it fucking was. It's about states' rights and hair. No, shut the fuck up, Jethro. People are so caught up in shit like this where they're so concerned about political correctness or complaining about political correctness when most of the world just doesn't give a shit. Really. I'm sitting here talking about this shit and nobody cares. Very few people actually care in the grand scheme of things. And another reason why I'm talking about this is because I just read an essay called The Youth in Asia. And I was reading it and I was thinking, you know, wow, this would offend someone and it wouldn't be someone who's Asian. It'd be some white liberal who'd be so upset that David Sedaris. I mean, 
he had a, 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 a white couple come up to him at the end of his show after he made a, a joke about how he wanted to move into Anne Frank's house because he thought it was a lovely home. Who the fuck cares? But these two people came up to him and said, who do we complain to about that? Anyway, I'm done talking. I'm tired and I'm getting to a place where I no longer make any goddamn sense. Maybe I make all the sense. Maybe you think, Patrick, you know what? You're a hero. We're going to put you on a pedestal and we're going to have a bunch of people come out, men and women, and they're going to stroke you and suck your cock until you come to climax and they're going to keep doing it. And you're going to be like, hold off now. I've already come and they're going to keep going and they're going to start licking under your balls around your taint. And it's kind of hairy there, but they don't care. They'll just spit out the hairs and keep going. They will lick you clean down there. You will not have any hair after they're done and they're not going to be done because they're just going to do it until you die from losing all the protein in your body and all the fluid in your body from it coming out of your deck. Okay, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading, happy listening, happy farting, happy shitting. Go get a life. Thank you.